We are now starting um, a topical series. Uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible. We just finished 2 Corinthians last week. We will start 1 Samuel, uh, Lord willing, the Sunday after Easter, after Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but we're going to do a series on spiritual warfare. Today's title is Knowing There is a War Still Happening. Knowing that there is a war still happening. When it comes to the subject of spiritual warfare... Honestly, most are not aware that it's still happening, or most of us have negated that a spiritual that war is still happening. So in 2001, I can remember seeing 9/11. I can remember seeing um, the second airplane crash into that second tower. I remember it. I remember on our small little uh, TV in our bedroom at the church parsonage in Ferris, Texas. Right. I remember going in there, my wife and I talking about it, watching that happen. I can remember all of that. And I remember something unique happened right there in, um, in, the, in our history. Before that, every enemy tended to have a nation, a state, land. It was kind of, there was a warfare that was prototypical. But at that point, it seemed like our warfare now was against something called fundamental Islamic terrorism. And the hard part about it is it, was, it wasn't as easily geographically defined at all times. It was... A different kind of enemy. It was an enemy that sometimes is invisible. And you just know it's invisible when it attacks. But when it attacks, it's too late. Now that's... that. And what's been interesting is since then, we've continued to fight terrorism. I think us, for kind of common folk, right? Us who are civilians, we sometimes don't really understand the threat of, of real terrorism. Because a lot of times, we have, we have good people taking care of things. And, and we don't know about it. And if we know about it, it's because something fell through or something got missed. But just because we don't always hear about it or know exactly what's going on day by day, does that mean that terrorism is actually not happening? No, it's still happening. It's just often invisible to us, so sometimes we're not really sure of the real threat. In like manner, that's kind of what spiritual warfare is like. We sometimes are not aware that there is a real war going on. Because this war, spiritual warfare, you can't see it. It's more invisible, but it surely is a war. But that's what makes this subject matter so hard. When we say the word spiritual warfare, some say, well, give me an example. Like, what does that define that word spiritual warfare? Well, John Bunyan called it a holy war. And what spiritual warfare is, is there are spiritual things happening. Satan and his demons are doing real temptations. That's one aspect of spiritual warfare. Another aspect is from, your, from yours and my, my own sinful nature, our sinful nature, indwelling sin, the old man, is also waging some wars within. There's a war without, there's war within, but there's also a methodology. There is a tactic that God has given us to fight against Satan and his schemes and to fight against our own sinful flesh. There is... so. That's spiritual warfare. There are spiritual forces on the outside. There's our own old sinful man on the inside. God has given us a template and ability to fight these to wage good spiritual warfare. And the end of the matter is that God does go before us. He has given us the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He has given us the ability to say no to sin and Satan and self-exaltation. God has given us that. So we can wage a spiritual warfare, but we must wage it and wage it we must. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it is real. Here's my hope today is I'm hoping to paint a picture that 
we actually are in a war. A real war is happening. That's my goal. If I can accomplish that today, um, what I do want to be careful about in this series, I want to caution. I don't want to promote inside of you an unhealthy interest in Satan and to such a point that you believe Satan is underneath every bed and behind every door and that every time you hit a rock and it jumps up and you know leaves that little annoying kind of crack in your windshield that you would just look at that and go, Satan got me today, right? I don't want to go that far, but then I don't want to go to the other extreme, which would be this idea that Satan really isn't at work or doing anything because he's invisible. I do want to promote in this series what I believe the Bible strongly um, encourages when it comes to spiritual warfare is confession of sin, repentance, prayer, obedience to God's command. I want to promote the regularity of such things as we won't look at this today, but I'll just call out these texts and maybe you can look at these. We'll be using these. I want to promote the regularity of James chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, the regularity of James 4, 7 through 8, which tells us that we fight against Satan through humble repentance. Or Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which says there's a spiritual battle and that we have the ability to not only defend, but to wage an offensive attack. We'll talk more about those scriptures as we get further into this message series. But I want you to know there is a war. Now, here's what the series is going to look like. Today, our message title is that they're knowing that a war is happening. That's number one. Next week, we're going to look at knowing the enemy without Satan. Who is Satan? What are, what are demons? And what are their plans? All right. Because if you're going to fight an enemy, you've got to know what enemy you're fighting. Then on March the 17th, we're going to have a message called Knowing the Enemy Within. We're going to look at indwelling sin. Although Satan does tempt, we also can't blame everything on Satan. Of our own sinful desires, we choose to do what we do. And what has God given us to fight the enemy within? That's, that's the third message. Then on March the 24th, we're going to do a mess. We're going to, our message is going to be knowing the offensive and defensive weapons and warfare plan against Satan and our own indwelling sin. And then the last message will be on Resurrection Sunday, knowing the enemy's greatest defeat. Right. So five points, five, five messages, Lord willing. Right. And we'll see. And then we'll start first Samuel. But today I really want to emphasize to us the idea that there really actually is a war because I think this is one of the things that why the Lord has kind of put this series in my soul is that I think we've fallen back on this idea. We don't really understand it. Now, to, although my objective in this moment now is not to talk a lot about demonic possession, when you talk about this idea of demonic possession, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and I'll talk more in our series, but here's why I'm going to talk to you about it, because I'm about to show you a clip that involves a movie that came out this last year called Nefarious, all right? Now, how many of y'all have seen this movie, Nefarious, right? All right? Not many of you have seen it, all right? Um, now, here's the basic deal. First of all, I tell you about the plot. I'm going to show you about four minutes from this movie, Nefarious, and here's the reason I'm going to show it to you. Because the, the overall theme of this movie that you're going to capture, it's the idea that spiritual warfare is actually happening, but everybody's ignoring it, Right? We've gotten to the point in life where we've become so intellectually evolved, right, that we don't actually think there's actually a war. But before I show that to you, 
I, I want to talk about demonic possession a little bit, and here's the reason. In a minute, when I show you this clip, there's a man in this clip who is an unbelieving man who is possessed by Satan. And this man was so possessed by Satan that he has done the most atrocious things in life, and even as far as murder, because Satan is a murderer from the very beginning. And this man is about to go, he is guilty, and is about to go to the electric chair. And before this man, who is demon-possessed, and in the clip you'll see some ticks and stuff, um, of, so you can see something's clearly wrong. By the way, the guy did a fabulous job acting in this movie. What you're going to see is he has to be cleared by a psychologist to actually go to the electric chair. Because if this secular psychologist finds out in his assessment that this man is not, um, is not, not have mental clarity, is mentally insane, then he cannot go to the electric chair. But if this man actually is sane, then he can actually then proceed to the electric chair. So there's a secular counselor opposite him that through the whole movie, uh, and there's a bigger plot to this. You're also going to see in the scene a Catholic priest walk in, which would be representative of all of us kind of secular clergy, but also the idea of most of us, which would be this negating of actual spiritual warfare. And so... That's kind of the set. Now, before I show this to you, I just want to make a comment to you. Some people ask, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And emphatically and strongly, I will tell you, no. A Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Can't happen. Not possible. Right? I'll, later in the series, I'll talk to you more and show you scriptures like 1 John 4, 4, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. These would be some of the reasons that I would say that we don't see the ability. Your Christians aren't possessed by Satan. However, can an unbeliever be possessed by Satan? Absolutely. Now, what's interesting, if you watch the whole movie, Narrative of Nefarious, this movie, um, he says something very interesting, is that he became possessed because all through his life, at little spaces and times, he'd given himself more and more over to the control of Satan, so much so that at a certain point in life, Satan just had complete control and ownership of this man. So that's kind of where he got. Now, just a warning about the movie. Um, it does have a lot of Catholic twinges to it, right? So you'll see that the man talks about one of the initial places of rebellion was that his parents did not baptize him, right? Um, I would... Let, that's not true in that part of the movie, right? Let's reject that part. But we do see a greater thing that this man had given himself as an unbeliever over and over and over to rebellion. And now he is owned, he is owned by Satan in such a way that he has been doing Satan's bidding. Now I can tell you this. I, I've actually run across demon-possessed people. And the first time I ran across a demon-possessed person um, is when I was in youth ministry. And we were doing ministry in a juvenile facility and I was preaching a message about the blood of Jesus. And a young, a, young man, a young man came up to me at the end of the message and he said, Hey, the message you preached really choked me up. And I was thinking to myself, Oh man, I, thanks for the compliment. You know, I'm so glad that you got something from this message. Um, and then the young man said, No, every time you talk about Jesus, a demon chokes me. Right? And so as I began to talk to the young man, um, I, I discovered, and some of y'all know more, of this story, but I discovered I didn't quite understand what I was getting into in the moment. So um, the next day, I called the chaplain of this juvenile facility and told him, "Say, listen, while we were there, there was a man who, there was a young man who claimed to be demon possessed, and when I talked about Christ, the demon would start choking him, 
I'm not sure what to do with this. Do you know what to do? And the chaplain said, we'll take care of it, and then I'll give you a call and let you know what happened. And so later on that week, um, the chaplain calls back, and he tells me what happens. And he said, we went in, we got a group of people to come in and to pray over him, and we preached the gospel to him. And we preached the gospel to him. We preached the gospel to him. He repented of his sin, trusted Christ as his Savior, and the demon left him. Now, at that point in life, I was new in ministry. I kind of thought, well, that's not what I've seen on TV. Like, y'all didn't like, you know, you didn't like Benny Hinnom or something like that. Or like, you didn't like, I mean, like you'd do something kind of more Hollywood-esque, you know? No. How does a person, how does a demon leave a person who is demon-possessed? They've got to repent of their sin and trust the gospel. That's it. A demon cannot reside in a believer. And so that was actually my first learning theologically of how to actually deal with demons. And my study of scripture has only confirmed that. Now, as we get further into the series, we'll talk more about that. That's not my point, but I just want to set that up as we watch this clip. Now, remember, as we watch this clip, there's, there's no hocus pocus. There's nothing. Um, and by the way, I'm careful to recommend this movie. Do not watch this with your little kids. All right. So don't, don't watch this kid with, your, with like your little kids. Your teenagers, I think, it, I think um, it could actually be very beneficial because there is a real war going on, right? I think it's really good with your teenagers. I've had, I've had Trinity watch it with me. Um, this is good to understand. There's a spiritual war going on. Now, in the scene you're about to see, it's a four-minute clip. You're going to see that there is a man who is possessed by a demon, an unbelieving man. There is the secular psychologist who thinks that he's just delusional. There is the clergyman that comes in and who is convinced that this whole idea about Satan, we've evolved above that. And that is just mere mythical kind of things, but not really real. Okay, y'all want to go ahead. We're going to play that four-minute clip. It's not exactly like you do. Boldly proclaiming their ideas on how they feel the universe operates. Never once contemplating the possibility that they could be wrong. You should see him now. Edward, do do you understand why I'm here? Do you realize I have the power to save you or condemn you? What I understand, James, is you would have no power over me whatsoever if it hadn't already been given to you from below. I invited him here. Thank you for coming. Father Lewis. I'm fine with Mr. Lewis. Hello. Dr. James Martin. Have you, um, have you met with him before? No. I've tried. He's always refused spiritual counseling. What do you want with me, son of God? Come here to torture me before the appointed time? He claims he's a demon. Carpenter sends you to gloat. Unfortunately for you, I'm not one that can be cast out so easily, though, am I? Sanity always has been an issue here. Hasn't it? Sadly, movies and TV have filled our heads with images that are largely metaphorical. Not meant to be taken literally. 
I'm not here to hurt you, Edward. I'm here to help you, to put you at your ease, make sure you're comfortable. Personally, I've never met a demon. I've never been part of an exorcism, nor do I expect to be. Many of the things that bother us are just our own fears and disordered thoughts. Consider demonic possession to be a possibility. Our understanding has evolved beyond that. Well, I appreciate you telling me that. I feel... I feel much better. And Lou... I was wrong about you. I should have had you come and visit sooner, but I'm glad that you did. I, I, I'm glad that we're all getting along. Would you like me to stay? No, we're done. Um, well, if you if you need me, um, I'll be available. You'll be available, Lou? Right up until the time you are... Uh... Right up until what, Lou? Right up until the sizzle? God bless you, son. Will you be available until the sizzle? Lou! When, Lou? When, Lou? Now you understand that Father Lou has confirmed that demons aren't really a thing. Did you really think that poser could help you? I'm still here, James. I'm not going anywhere. You still have to deal with me. You're being irrational. I am the most rational being you will ever meet. Now, once again, I don't want you to sit there and go like, oh, Nick says I got to watch this movie. But I, I will tell you, and it has way more... Catholicism that I disagree with, but here is the greatest premise that I hope that you get from this and that my, my purpose in our message today and even showing you that. There is a real war going on, and to our detriment, we ignore it. To our detriment, we ignore it. It's real. It's not made up. It's not fictitious. Although this movie was a fictitious movie, and I can't promote all forms of, of how uh, Hollywood would try to portray a demon-possessed person. And I would also tell you that, it, that it, as a Christian, you cannot be demon-possessed, but you can be tempted by Satan, and you can give yourself to sin so much that his temptations become easier and easier. And you can ignore that there is actually a true spiritual warfare going on around you. And so much that you're not even fighting against it. And it will have a profound and real effect on you. I also will tell you, if you are not a Christian, I fear for you. I don't want to scare you into salvation, but I will tell you that if you're not in Christ, I don't give you any hope to resist any kind of satanic attack in your life. And my greatest hope is that maybe you're being overlooked some by Satan and his demons. 
One good reason among many to bow the knee, repent, and believe in Jesus, believe the gospel message, is that you would have a new um, and abiding Holy Spirit inside of you that would empower you to say no to Satan and sin and self and exalt God, and that you wouldn't be taken captive by him to do his will. But our overall message today is, I just want, you, I just want us to wake up to the reality that, that warfare actually is real. It actually is going on. Now, with what time I have, I'll, I'll be giving you many scripture references. It's going to be impossible for me to give you everything, but I do want to have you, I want you to have some record of some things. So the first idea is this, the, there is a spiritual war and this war started with the Lord with the fall of Satan. That's when this war started. So if you're a point person, if you're looking for points, the war started with the Lord with the fall of Satan. If you're a note taker and you're writing down things, you can write Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11 through 19. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11 through 19. For time's sake, we won't be reading that here, but I will just basically let you know this is a, this is a judgment coming on the king of Tyre. But also many would say this. There's a double meaning when you clearly read it. You can see that it denotes the exaltation of Satan, that Satan exalts himself against the throne room of God. Another reference would be Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15. Isaiah chapter 12, verse... Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. This is a message to the king of Babylon. But also, many would see in there the descriptive ideas of Satan's fall, his exaltation. Satan, in the scriptures, was created angelic, was created as the lead worship, uh, lead worship leader in heaven. He exalted himself and fell from heaven. Now, when did he fall? There's a lot of disagreement about that. If you'll take your Bible and you'll go over to Genesis chapter 3, is where I really want to look at to start off, although I'm just going to make some comments just to kind of help out. I've given you a couple of scripture passages to look at some of the double meanings of the fall of Satan, and they're related to earthly kings, but also points, many, many scholars would say, towards the actual fall of Satan. But when he actually fell, we're not really sure. I can... I can say that what most would say is by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, you now have a fall somewhere happening there. That at the end of Genesis chapter 1, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. And then you get down to verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it in chapter 2, verse 3. Because on it he rested from all his work which he created. Some would say that somewhere after the the seventh day and somewhere before Genesis 3, somewhere even potentially in the garden, when you look at at Ezekiel chapter 28, is when Satan fell. I'll also say that some of my professors um, in my bachelor degree taught that Satan fell in Genesis 1-1. And that's why the earth was without form and darkness, is that there was a great cataclysm that happened on the earth. And that there was some recreation that needed to be made. Whatever you support and think, the, fo- the point is this. Satan did fall. He fell. And part of his fall, it was because he fell because he tried to exalt himself to the standard of being God. And in his fall, now he did something that was disastrous. He waged war on those made in God's image. He waged war then, and he's waging war now. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you can see that at this point, Satan has already fallen, so he starts in on a war. And if you're looking for a point two, it's this, the war continued into the Garden of Eden. So point number one is the, uh, is the war started with the Lord with the 
fall of Satan, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. And then the war, point number two, continued into the Garden of Eden. And you get to chapter 3, verse 1, Satan has fallen. He is the enemy of the one true God, but he is now the enemy of man. He is crafty, he is sneaky. And the greatest, the greatest danger that, that we see right here is, I don't know if Adam and Eve are aware that there is a war that's going on. But a war there is. I think for us sometimes, to our detriment, we don't believe that there's a war going on. But certainly there is a war going on. As you look in chapter 3, verse 1, I just want to read it and make some comments so you understand this war that is happening that started even in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh had made. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Notice he says that he's crafty, right? Also notice it says that the Lord had made. Satan has power, but his power is always under control. What he does, he cannot do everything that he wants to do. Um, the devil is God's devil. That means that in the end, he is, doing, he is doing exactly what's going to happen in the end that results in God being glorified. That does not mean what he does is good. That does mean that he cannot thwart God's purpose and plan. Even what he did in the garden is bad. Even what he did in the garden brought terrible cataclysm for us today. But even what he did in the garden, there was a plan that God had to bring redemption to this. And we'll show that to you here in just a little bit. So he's crafty. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? What does he first want to do? He wants to cast doubt on God's word. That's the real war. By the way, I'm not really sure if, if most of us can even fight a war because we don't really know God's word. There's a war going on. And the less you and I know God's word, the less we'll be able to fight. Now, God had given a commandment to Adam to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was, as the leader and shepherd, was to trans, translate and give that to his wife. And it seems at a p- key pivotal point, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, she says. But it's because uh, Satan is placing a doubt on God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not touch it. You shall not eat of it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. Now, the command of God was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he never said anything about not touching it. Of course, it would be good to not touch it. But it seems that possibly she might be misquoting what the commandment was given to her husband. It, it seems that there should be un, some unfamiliarity. But here's the bigger problem I have in the text. Where is Adam? Where is Adam? Adam should be there to protect her. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. It seems like there is either an unawareness or an unconcern that a war is happening. I hope today we walk away from this message thinking and knowing and realizing there is a war. And it is happening. Whether we realize it or not, think it is or not, it is happening. Oh, it is most definitely happening. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, casting doubt on God's word. For God knows in the day that you will eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, he was right about knowing good and evil. She would know a sinful nature. And the woman saw the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes, a lust of the eyes. And the tree desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, she ate. Now, a lot of people think at this point, it's just a piece of fruit. Now, what does that matter? Actually, no, it was cosmic treason. 
the, the whole motivation was more than just the fruit itself. It was the idea of I can be God. I can do what I want. No one can tell me what to do, which is interesting. Has that ever been a philosophy that you've ever like lived by? No one can tell me what to do. I am the master of my own world. Yeah, you're in spiritual warfare right there. So she takes it, she eats, and it says, and she gave also to who with her? Her husband who's with her. And he ate. Here's what happens when you're on the sidelines of spiritual warfare. Others, others get ate up by Satan. I mean, even in many of our homes, the reason our homes sometimes look the way they look is that a husband is sitting on the sidelines and not protecting his family and his bride from the spiritual warfare that is going on. Know this, there is a war going on and we see it even as early as the garden Verse 7, it says, The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They tried to cover their own sin. Man is insufficient to cover his own sin. If you're here today and you think that you're going to earn your way into heaven by your good works, that's you covering fig leaves for your sin. That is not sufficient. You need a sacrifice. You need a Savior. They couldn't cover their own sin. How much so could they not cover their own sin? In verse 8, they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Never can a person hide from God. Verse 9, And Yahweh called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Leaving out an important point, isn't he? Verse 11, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? When God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. And the man said, The woman... Whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me of the tree, and I ate. He blame shifted, points it towards her. But yet, does this not reveal in the moment? Shouldn't he realize that there was actually a spiritual war that was going on right here? There was warfare. He tried to blame his warfare on his wife when he had a bigger enemy that he was at war with and did not recognize it. Of course, God knows. He recognizes it. Verse 12, and and the man said to the... And the man said, the woman whom you, I'm sorry, verse 13. And Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Certainly that is true. The scriptures bear out. She was deceived. And Adam takes, Adam is the one who, as the federal head, is responsible because he's the one that didn't protect in the moment. Verse 14, and Yahweh said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle. More than every beast of the field on your belly will you go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So Satan has a curse that's put on him. And this ultimately follows the whole trend of the Bible as you look at spiritual warfare. What happens in spiritual warfare is that Satan will be bruised, um, that Satan will be bruised on the head as Satan tries to bruise Jesus on the heel and his offspring and his seed on the heel. This cosmic battle in verse 15 has been happening ever since. Now this is the first promise of the gospel. When it says, you shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel, what, he's, what the, ultimately it's pointing to is this day when, when Jesus would come, he would give the final Blow to the head, which is a, I mean, if you're going to get bruised on the heel or the head, which one has mortal consequences? 
the head, right? Just so you know. You don't want to get hit in the head. You don't want to get hit in the foot, but get hit in the head is a lot worse. So in this, in this first prophecy, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. You're going to see this all throughout Scripture, the Old Testament. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman coming against each other. They're in this war. This war culminates to the cross. And at the cross, there was this bruising of Jesus' heel by Satan. During Jesus' earthly ministry, there was this bruising of his heel. And even still today, there's this, this onslaught and attack that Satan tries to do to God's people. This trying to even bruise God's people. But ultimately, the bruise to the head, the, the, one that, the wound that actually carries death, the one that actually does the, um, the final um, most damage. That's what Christ does at the cross, is he bruises the head of Satan. He puts away the power of Satan. So this battle, it started, in number one, between the Lord, Satan and the Lord, and it happened in the garden. And it continues to happen as you make your way through the Old Testament. If you're looking for a third point, the war continued even to the Old Testament. We won't spend a lot of time on this one, but point three, the war continued into the Old Testament. If you were to look in chapter four, if you look in chapter four, this is Cain and Abel. Do you remember this? Cain and Abel, and basically what you have with Cain and Abel is the first start of the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. You have the seed of the woman, which is ultimately going to culminate in Christ. But as far as Adam and Eve was concerned, that 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 seed of the woman, the Savior, was going to more than likely be Abel. That's what their first thought, that God has given us. Actually, when you look at the name for Eve, her her name means that there is a promise. The name means that she believes that God is going to bring something from her firstborn. So... Abel comes along and the thought is that he will be of the seed of the woman. Here's the Savior. There is a resolution. He's going to finally take care of what Satan has done to us. But Satan then uses his brother Cain. As you find in the story, Cain kills Abel because Cain is evil. And according to Jude, is of an evil way and the evil one. So again, what you, what you find is this battle even starts going through the Old Testament. And you see this seed of the woman, and this seed of Satan waging war all throughout the Old Testament. For instance, when you move into Exodus, right, and you see the children of Israel, right, uh, they cross, they leave Egypt, cross over the Red Sea. What are we seeing in that? We see that the king of Egypt, um, he is, he tries to hold on to God's people, wants to persecute God's people. The, he wants to go against the seed of the woman. From the seed of the woman come the Come the, come the Jewish people, will come the nation of Israel, and from the nation of Israel will come the Messiah. And you recall that when Moses was born, what did Pharaoh want to happen to all the, to all the firstborn sons in Israel? He wanted to kill them. Why? Because he wanted to kill the seed of the woman. He wanted to kill Moses. Moses later comes on, and he's an intercessor. He shows us and points us away to the great Moses to come, Jesus, who will provide the perfect intercession. But then we find that Egypt wants to come, that, that Pharaoh wants to come against Moses and wants to come against the children of God, wants to come against the seed of the woman. And you see a battle being waged once again. But once again in that battle, we find that the seed of the woman is protected by God, that Israel is brought out of Egypt because Israel's got to be brought to the promised land because from that land and that people will someday come the Messiah. But we find that Satan does everything he can through the seed of Satan, through Pharaoh, and tries everything he can to hold on to God's people and to hold on to Israel until God, with a strong and mighty hand, removes them. But there was a war going on. We, and as you travel through the Old Testament, you can see this war between the 
seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, God's seed, what God has planned, and Satan's seed and what he has planned. So much so that by the time we get to the New Testament, and this would be point four, this war continued into the first coming of Jesus all the way to the cross. If you go over to Luke chapter 2, this war continues. This spiritual war continues in Luke chapter 2. You know this. It's around the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. So we see in... We see this war, this war that's going on, this, this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. In fact, I told you wrong. It's actually, it's actually Matthew chapter 4. It's actually where you should go. So we see this seed, this, this, this seed that's happening, right? This war that's going on. Yeah, I'm looking at my time, guys, so I'm just trying to see what I have time to kind of cover here. What would you say? Yeah, six lessons. Let's do this. Let's go ahead and jump over to chapter 4 of... Yeah, go ahead and do there. I'll just tell you about Luke. Go to Matthew chapter 4 so we can kind of get there. Yeah, it goes six lessons. You're right. But we're not going to do it. We're going to get it. Chapter 4. So we see here, um, by the time we get to the New Testament, do you remember what happens that, that Jesus' parents have to take him and have to, have to take him over to Egypt? Because what happens? Herod puts out the death order to take the firstborn son, right? We see, once again, there's a spiritual war going on, the seed of Satan. Herod, at that point, is now trying to take over and get rid of the seed of the woman, the Savior. There's all this war that's trying to happen. Remember, this war has been going on. We see so much that later on in chapter 4 of Matthew, we see now Jesus as a full-grown man, Jesus entering into his public ministry, and there is a war still going on. Most of us are familiar with Matthew chapter 4, but if you were looking at Matthew chapter 4, it says, And Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he fasted 40 days and nights, he became hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, this is verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you know this passage, Satan keeps tempting, tempting Jesus because if Jesus can sin, then he's truly not God, right? He offers him all these sorts of temptations. Every time, by the way, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes God's word. But I want you to see here, there's a war that's going on. As you keep going through the passage, this is Satan's trying to attack Jesus This is the battle that's been going on all in the beginning. My point to you is this idea that there is a war and the war has been happening. Now, let me spend a little bit more time and go back to Luke and we're going to look at chapter 22. When you look at chapter 22 of Luke, we're now now going to the cross. And one of the interesting things that before the cross, you can see this war continue to happen. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, of the woman, Ultimately pointing to Jesus, and Jesus being this seed of the woman, this seed that would come and someday make a resolution, would take away the sin that Adam and Eve threw us into. If you go over to chapter 22 of Luke, this is, at, this is the 
Um, this is the betrayal. This is the arrest that happens. If you go in Luke chapter 22, and we'll look at verse 1. It says this, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was drawing near. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death. They were afraid of the people. Now look at verse 3. And Satan entered into, who does it say? Who was called Iscariot, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking opportunity to betray him to them and he, uh, to them apart from the crowd. So here we are having the Passover. And once again, the seed of Satan being used now using Judas. Judas is trying to betray Jesus. Judas is going against Jesus. He's being used and, and being possessed by Satan for money. By the way, sometimes with the most, when we're most acting like Satan is when we're loving money. And so we see here that there's this, once again, this war that's going on. Satan wants to stop the cross. Satan wants to get in the way. Satan wants to use even an unbelieving man who'd been with Jesus for three and a half years, Judas. And then you look over at chapter 22 and verse 31. Over that meal, by the way, after they had argued about who was the greatest... Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is telling him, Peter, Satan has come after me, but what Satan wants to do is come after you. Who has Satan already got in this text already? Judas, right? And now he's saying he wants the rest of you guys. He wants to sift you like wheat. When you sift something, That means you're shaking it out. When you would sift something, you'd take grain and you would try to sift all the dirt out of it and get it out of the ground. You would shake it violently. And he's saying what Satan wants to do, he's already done to Judas. Now he wants to do to you. He wants to sift you. He wants to shake you. He wants to come against you. In verse 32, he says, Peter, but I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you've returned, strengthen your brothers. You know the story, I'm sure you do, that Peter did actually, um, Peter did deny the Lord and that the disciples all scattered. But after the resurrection, they all came back bold as lions, ready to fight a war. But there is a war going on. There is a war that Satan wants. Satan wants to sift Peter. Satan wants to sift you. Satan hates you. As much as he wanted as much as he got Judas as an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, he'll get you just like he got Judas. And Judas was hanging around Jesus for quite a while. Just like he wanted to come after Peter, who was in, uh, who, who was, uh, who would be an, who's an apostle of the Lord, who's a follower of the Lord. He wants to tear down and sift and destroy Peter, just like he wants to sift and destroy you. So we find that this war continued even through the through the ministry of Jesus. When you look at Jesus and you look at all the things that came against him, you see Satan was constantly trying to bring an attack to Jesus. This is why I believe there was so much demonic manifestation during the time of Jesus. There was these attacks that were going on. Of course, Satan lost it every single time. Jesus would heal a person of, of disease. He would take over. He would take over the famine of food. Because there is a zero, there is a zero tolerance policy for sin, and he, and sickness and hell, and Satan in the kingdom of heaven. When you look in chapter two and verse fifty three, 
you uh, in verse 53, this is now we're at the betrayal and arrest. And when they come and when Judas had come to the garden with the Roman soldiers, it says, we'll actually pick it up here. Mm, let me pick it up here in verse uh, 52. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, why have you come out with swords and clubs against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you not stretch out your hand against me? But this hour and the authority of darkness are yours. What Jesus says in the moment is, the darkness of Satan is now coming upon this time. I'm about to suffer the judgment of God for mankind's sin. And Satan is going to do this kind of heel bruise on me. But ultimately, when you look into, when you look at the message, what happens after this, he dies on the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing that he takes the judgment of our sin but the, the very last thing he, cry, he cries out on the cross is, it is what? Finished. Meaning that he has accomplished the redemption. And then three days later, what we'll celebrate at the end of the month is the resurrection. The resurrection is our receipt that Jesus has actually conquered sin, Satan, and any kind of self-exaltation of Satan. So much so that if you're taking notes, you could write down Colossians 3.15. As a result of the work of the gospel, it says that Jesus, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. So this war has been going on ever since the beginning, through the garden, into the Old Testament, and the ministry of Jesus. Satan has been attacking. Even at, even at the cross, there was attack. But ultimately, Satan is disarmed. Jesus dies for our sin. He arises from the dead. And now, this war is still continuing on. Look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This war is still continuing on. If you're looking for points, this is point number five. The war is still happening, but we have the upper hand. The war is still happening, but we have the upper hand. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death, talk about the death of Christ, he might render, what does it say? He might render what? I got one person. Hebrews 2.14. It begins with a P. Say it again. Powerless. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the war has been going all since the beginning. The war is going now, but we now have the upper hand. We have the upper hand because Jesus, through his sacrifice and through his resurrection, has rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's why I can tell you, a Christian can't be possessed by Satan, and a Christian can say no to Satan. But my fear is that most Christians aren't aware that Satan's actually still working. He doesn't like you. He hates you. But here's the thing about Satan. He hates you, but he doesn't hate you like an ex, right? You know, like an ex, have you ever had an ex where there was a breakup and then you kind of changed your mind and you were like, you know what, things weren't so bad. I want to go back to that person. And the ex said, not now. I have nothing to do with you. Or some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Nick. But Satan's a little bit different. He's not like an ex that gets bitter. Satan's not bitter if you come back. Satan doesn't say, well, you didn't have time for me in the past. You're worshiping Jesus then. I don't want you back. No. Satan always wants you back. 
he'll gladly take you back. He is not some jaded ex-lover. He's not some jaded ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. He wants you back. He'll gladly take you back. How much so do we know that? Because we see here that the power of Satan has been rendered powerless. So that should mean that the rest of our time as we go through the Bible, that Satan should have no more power. We shouldn't see any more warfare of Satan. We shouldn't see anything else. But do we see Satan still working through the rest of Scripture? Do we still see it? Man, we see it all over the place. Although he is rendered, he does not have the same power he had before. For instance, when you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, before you're told to go, Jesus says, all authority, what? Has been given to me in heaven and earth. So when you look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 through 3, you find that as a result of the work of the cross, you find that Satan's ability to distract from the spread of the gospel to the nations has been stopped because of the work of the cross. So you find that in favor, what's happened now is God's people have favor. We have the ability to say no to sin and Satan and self. So much so that we can boldly take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People say sometimes you've got to earn a right to give the gospel to people. You don't have to earn a right to give the gospel to people. The right has already been earned and given authority by Jesus. We are actually the ones that can take the war, can take on the fight. We actually, and when you when you look at the Bible, it describes that we're not on really the defense, we're on the offense. If you're taking notes, you can write down Matthew 16, 16. Do you remember Matthew 16, 16 when, when Jesus asked Peter, who, who, is, who, do, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the what? Living God. And, and, and then Jesus says, upon this rock I will establish my church. That profession that you had, Peter. And the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against the church. I just want you to notice. The gates of hell. Not our gates. The gates of hell. Meaning, we're not on the defense. We're the ones charging towards the gates of hell. Now, why can we charge the gates of hell? Because of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. When Jesus says, I've given you all authority, and Revelation 20 lets us know that as a result of the work of the cross, the power of Satan has been broken, we are the ones who are on the offense. We are the ones waging spiritual warfare. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to walk out there and Look at Satan and think that he's just some weakling and that he has, he, has, he has no terrible schemes for us. Don't get all high and mighty and pious and, and think that about yourself. But do realize that we have the ability to wage war. But the first thing I'm concerned with at times is I don't think we think there's actually a war going on. Satan's lost the battle. But the war does continue. And this will be the last point. Point number six. The war does continue. The war does continue, though. Although we have the upper hand and we have, we have now the power of the gospel message. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what of God? The power of God into salvation. Why can you be saved today? Because Jesus has broken the spiritual warfare of Satan on you. And if you're thinking, should I trust Jesus as Savior? Satan has been broken. Yes, you should. You should trust him. But this power of the gospel breaks all things, right? It breaks the war, it breaks the strongholds that Satan has on you. But that doesn't mean Satan's still not practicing and doing. I want to now flip through a couple of scriptures and we'll be done. Are you guys doing okay? Are you okay? First Peter five eight. Let me just show you a, a couple of scriptures. 
Satan is still working. He is, he is a toothless monster. His back has been broken. He's limping around, but he's still doing damage. How do I know this? Let's look through a couple different scriptures, right? I'll try to kind of work, and we'll work backwards so you can flip. And this is just a, a small amount, but we'll show you more as we go on. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of a sober spirit, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Does that not seem like Satan is still actively doing some stuff? His power is broken, but he's still active. He's a, he's a, he's a toothless monster, but he's still a monster. Just because your back's broken doesn't mean you still can't do stuff. So he's still, he's, still, he's still at it in verse 8. Now, keep going. Turn over next over to James chapter 4, verse 7. James, And all you're going to do now is just, just turn to your left here and so you don't have to go around. I just want to show you a couple of scriptures just to prove the point that there is still a war happening because we still see evidence. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, Be subject, therefore, to God. And then it says what? Resist who? Resist the devil. Resist Satan. Why would it say that if Satan still wasn't waging some kind of warfare? Now, by the way, we'll look in the coming weeks about one of our tactics, one of our ways that we fight back. You see it in the verse 7 and 8, what it looks like to fight this warfare. But I'm just trying to suppose to you the idea that warfare is still actually happening. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 through 5. Another war that's happening. This one, Satan's really doing it through false teachers. That's why you ought to be careful what you listen to, what you read, what you believe. But the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. This is 1 Timothy 4. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and by their hypocrisy of liars who've been seared by their own conscience who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Notice here that Satan is still alive and working and he's working through deceit through liars, through seared conscience who are forbidding good things like marriage and the enjoyment of what God has provided but nonetheless Satan is still working there's still a spiritual warfare going on. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians, keep turning left. Chapter 2, verse 18. Paul says to the Thessalonians, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet... Satan did what? There's still war that he's fighting. He, there's, Paul says, I, Satan did some things that hindered us coming to you. There's a war still happening. This is post-cross. Although I don't want you to, to make more of Satan than what you should. I also don't want you to negate that he's still working. There's a spiritual warfare going on. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 and 12. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. When I watch this movie Nefarious, uh, stripping aside some of the 
some of the improper, improper doctrinal teaching that be promoted within the Catholic Church, I did walk away with this idea that, that, that I couldn't shake. That, that we are people that don't believe a war is actually happening. We have ignored it to our peril and the peril of our families, to the peril of our church. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the what? Schemes of the devil. Sounds like he's still doing stuff, doesn't it? There is a war actually happening. Turn over now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Do y'all remember this book? We spent a long time on it. Chapter 12 and verse 7. Do you remember Paul saying in verse 7? Because it's surpassing greatness of revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of who? To what? To torment me? A messenger of Satan to torment me? Although in this, in this it's really great to see that, that, that God is manipulating Satan for his eternal purposes in Paul's life. But yet, don't lose sight of this. There is a war happening. Satan is... He is not alive and well. He is not well, but he is alive. And he is still exercising the fringes of what God has allowed him to do. And to our detriment, we are ignoring it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Remember this one? Paul says about the false teachers in Corinth. Of such men, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For if such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as the ministers of righteousness. Is Satan still using false teachers in our pulpits today, in our teaching platforms, in our books, in our podcasts, in our counseling rooms, in our counseling rooms today. Is he? Yes. The war is still happening. In fact, I'd, I'd cite to you that I think one of the places Satan is most using, is most gaining an advantage of Christians, it's in the counseling room. I am, I am serious as a heart attack when I say that. I am serious about it. I am I have been I am not shocked I am shocked by how far I have seen Christians go away from God after receiving counsel from a pagan or receiving counsel from a person who's mixing pagan thought with bible thought and thinking they're coming up with what's right this is how Satan's attacking people 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5 Oh I'm sorry 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5 This is in relation to the marriage, the marriage bed. Stop depriving one another. Just a side note, this is not part of the message, but if you're married and you're in the covenant of marriage and you're withholding yourself in the marriage, you are practicing something, you are practicing an element 
that has basically given Satan the ability to attack your spouse. Just telling you. That's what the text is telling us. So look what it says. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, you're supposed to be coming together in the marriage bed, and one is requesting and you're denying. And if there's a time for you not to, it's, it's for prayer and for spiritual exercise. But come again. But come back together. Because if you don't, Satan might tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What do you find in this? Warfare is still happening. But just a side note, if you're married. And your spouse desires you still. right? It desires or you're at the place where... Where things, um, or this is a normal part of the marriage still. I just want to tell you, there is a cooperation with something satanic when you do not give yourself fully and freely to your spouse as God has commanded. It is warfare. Verse 5, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Here's what I'm just trying to get across. Satan is still doing stuff, guys. A war is actually still happening around us. Can we wake up to it? Look in chapter 5, verse 5. This is describing the discipline of someone who's been disciplined by the church. Now, this is what happens when you're disciplined by a church in the end, when church discipline has happened. You're being turned over to Satan. But look what Satan wants to do with someone who is not repentant, who's been put outside the body of Christ because of their sin. And this, it was sexual morality. It says, deliver such a one to who? For the destruction of what? He's saying, this person who is in such rank sin wouldn't repent. Put them outside the church. Turn them over to Satan. And as soon as you do that, what is Satan going to do? Destroy them. Why? There's a war still going on. There's a war still going on. That's the, of all this stuff I've tried to share with you today, my ultimate hope is that we would wake up and realize there is a war going on. Satan is around us. He is not controlling us, but we are giving him control. But his back has been broken, and his mouth does not, they do not have real teeth. He's gumming at us, and we're giving him way too much power, and we're ignoring him. Satan has gotten control of our children, of our homes, of our churches. There's a lack of repentance and faith and obedience to God, and it can be boiled down to this idea that we're just ignoring God. We're ignoring that God that there's this warfare going on. Satan is real. He wants you. He hates you. He wants you back. He wants his territory back. He will delightfully accept you back. I pray that God would use our series to wake us and shake us back to the reality of there is a real spiritual war going on. Would you stand to your feet and could we pray together over this? Thank you for how I ran over. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for your generosity. As our worship teams come, could you join me in prayer? Thank you for your word. May now we walk away from here realizing there is a real war going on. There's a real war to fight. First, if there's someone here that is vulnerable in this war because they're not in Christ, 
Bring them to faith today. May they, may they do what Romans 10 says. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If there's somebody that's not here right now, could they pray and ask Christ as their Lord and King, knowing that their sin has separated them from a holy God, but Jesus is the sin-atoning sacrifice. God, would you do that? For the rest of us, wake us up. We're pointing fingers at so many people. We're making flesh and blood our enemy. We're making our employer our enemy. We're making our sons and daughters our enemy. We're making people in our church our enemy. But, you're, but Satan is our enemy. Wake us up. Let us see. Then let us take the resources that your word has given us. And let us fight well. And let us take this fight to the gates of hell. And let us take this gospel to the nations. Because the authority and the power is already there. Bless our time of singing. May it solidify what we're learning. In Jesus' name, amen.